Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen, and this episode is a gorgeous charcuterie board or glorified girl dinner, you might even call it on TikTok or if you're the New York Times, brought to you by you. I've never done a 100% listener letters only episode. I sometimes feel a little bit selfish being the only one who gets to read your letters, questions, life updates. Also, consider this episode your friendly reminder that I love hearing from y'all. I especially love hearing voice memos. All you have to do, record yourself on your phone. You can email it to hello at unladylike.co or you can DM it to me on Instagram at Unladylike Media. You can send me a little voice memo. Now, one of my favorite things about Unladylike is how much I learn from y'all. Take, for example, our first letter today from an unlady named Elizabeth. And this was in response to the June episode, The Little Feminist Mermaid. Elizabeth starts things off with the three most exciting words in the English language. New listener here. Thank you for the great topic so far. As a Danish feminist scholar, I'd love to add a short and sweet correction and juicy comment to the Little Mermaid episode. Hans Christian Andersen, who, side note, he wrote the original Little Mermaid fairy tale, was not simply a man writing about a silenced woman. It's commonly understood that The Little Mermaid is a story about his own experience of closeted queer love and desire. He identifies as the suffering mermaid. I was hoping that would be part of the feminist reading of it, but I understand that you wouldn't know that. As a Black Danish woman specifically, Hans Christian Andersen is one of the only white Danish men I care to cite because his fairy tales actually often held deep societal critiques given his time and context. The Ugly Duckling, for example, is an apt description of the small-mindedness of Denmark and its intolerance for difference even to this day. Anyway, just thought you'd appreciate those nuances. Out of the sea wish I could be part of that world. Even though Elizabeth was at the time a new listener, she clearly got me because I love the nuances. I love nuances both in fairy tales, in this case, and also in real life, which leads us 
to some updates. We've got some updates from unladies who have written in to ask unladylike. On the last Ask Unladylike, Allison Raskin was on to help me answer questions from listeners we named Sally and Louise, and I have updates from them both. Louise is a queer Seattleite who wants to get back into dating, but hates the apps, but also doesn't know how to initiate things IRL, like out in the wild. I asked Louise how things were going, and Louise wrote, I've realized a big part of why I hate the apps is that I don't actually like getting to know people over text and would much rather meet in person sooner. I've been trying to practice getting my nerve up to ask people out for coffee very early, explaining why I'm asking so soon. I mentioned this to a friend last night who turns out to be the opposite and likes getting to know people via text first, so this strategy certainly doesn't work for everyone. Interesting thing, though, she's mostly dating men and wouldn't want to meet them right away, but realized an early invitation to meet would feel very different coming from someone who wasn't a cis man. And that was something Allison and I, two women who are married to cis men, Louise is queer. And yeah, I have a feeling the social scripts around dating apps are gonna be a bit different in queer spaces versus cishet spaces. And that's something I would love to hear from y'all about if this is ringing any bells. On that Ask Unladylike episode, before Allison and I offered advice to Louise, we answered a question from an unlady we named Sally. And Sally was writing in struggling with how much to kind of put her mental health out there in the workplace. And for Sally, that workplace was academia. Here's the update I got from Sally. If I had to offer advice to any other unladies, it would be to really reflect on whether the job is worth sacrificing your mental health for. In my previous email, I was so concerned about being perceived as professional that I didn't consider the impact my work as a whole was having on my mental health. But working in academia or in any field where you're inherently perceived as doing good for others, I felt beholden to put my job above all else. I learned about the harm of vocational awe and took stock of the pros and cons of my job. Between COVID, workplace bullying, and feeling like my mental health was being exploited by my peers, I decided to leave academia and pursue a career elsewhere. It just wasn't worth it. At some point, I realized that if other academics viewed my work as unprofessional, then I was working with the wrong people. Thank you for the continued great work on your podcast and with your always valuable discussions and insights. I'm so happy for Sally, and I'm sure that this probably resonates with unladies listening who may also be in academia or in a classroom somewhere. I wanted to share this DM from an unlady named Kelly. I'm a public school teacher in Massachusetts. In 2021, a new state law gave 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave to workers in Massachusetts. Sounds great, right? Well, it doesn't apply to municipal workers like, all caps, 
public school teachers, the majority of which are women. Our only option is to hoard our sick days and hope they will cover some of our maternity leave. This means going to work sick if you know you're planning on having a baby in the next few years. I had to take a bunch of sick days last year for my IVF treatments, so that means less paid time with my new baby this winter. Teachers unions in the states have been fighting back, though. They've been asking for some paid leave in their district's contract, and that's what our union is doing at this moment. We asked for 12 weeks paid leave, and the city offered two weeks. Two fucking weeks. That's Kelly's words, not mine, believe it or not. And we're celebrating that as a win. And as I told Kelly, that is enraging. Come on. Also, what about all the other municipal workers? Oh boy, don't get me started, Kelly. Don't get me started. And here's one more reality check from an unlady named Kara. I left teaching this year like the thousands of fed up badass folks who know their worth. After being made to feel badly for taking care of my own children when they were sick, quote unquote, abandoning my class, to funding basic needs for families I worked with who didn't have their basic needs met and were failed by the system, to teaching dual language learners and new immigrant families who deserved more than our broken systems would give them. I was on our union exec board and advocated my little booty off through the pandemic. So much lip service and not enough action. I now work for a nonprofit that supports early childhood centers with their technical plans and operations. I struggle with the feeling like I gave up, but I have to think of my own health and my family because the public schools I worked at did not give two shits about me, let alone my family. And if there are any public school administrators listening, please explain, okay? And don't you dare fucking pass the buck and blame Joe Biden. Because the only thing we're blaming him for right now is having the audacity to run for re-election. This episode is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Every day, all the time, we are faced with choices. Sometimes it's a choice whether or not to shave our legs or not wash our hair for yet another day. And then, of course, there are the harder, longer-term choices. Therapy has helped me develop the tools and create the space to navigate those kinds of choices, good, bad, or falling off a cliff. If you're therapy curious, take a look at BetterHelp. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Unladylike today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash unladylike. We're back, and let's rewind to early this summer for episode 195, Green Card Marriage with Anna Lakis Miller. I have a couple of listener stories to share that are equal parts romantic in terms of the lengths people 
will and do go to for love. And also, yeah, it's enraging. <laughs> it's always it's always enraging. Okay, this is what Unlady Carly wrote in. My husband is from South America and I'm from the U.S. We got married last May and started the application for his green card in June. It wasn't until the end of this past April when we finally got his green card. Our lawyer said we'd have it by the end of 2022. The whole process was a nightmare. Our lawyer never gave us information or updates, and when we asked questions, he'd always say, contact the USCIS, that's the Immigration Services, but good luck with that because they won't tell you anything different. Toward the end of the process, it was pretty quick. Getting a doctor exam, sending a few extra documents, case approval, green card, all within a month or so. But the whole hurry up and wait was frustrating. Nothing like getting blown off by a lawyer you are paying. And no, that's not really a subtweet. Not not to any lawyers that I'm paying. Although Kevin, Kevin, if you're listening, you know who you are. A fellow Kristen wrote in and gave me some incredible sticker shock. Kristen wrote, I'm currently in El Salvador on my summer break with my in-laws and am here without my partner. He left El Salvador with his family when he was 13 and has lived undocumented in the U.S. ever since. We were married in September 2022 and applied for his green card shortly thereafter, using all of our wedding gift money. But we knew he wouldn't hear back in time for this trip. I'm here for five weeks to study Spanish and spend time with his family. At the start of my second week here, he got his green card and the mail, and he's coming here in two days. His relatives here haven't seen him in 20 years, and I'm the only one who knows he's coming! Two exclamation points! A lot of people think it's basically automatic, that you get married, and now you're documented. When I tell them my family has spent more than $60,000 on immigration-related expenses, their mouth drops open. Yeah, mine did too, fellow Kristen. The system is so exploitative, and it doesn't get enough attention. You, you, you think throwing a wedding can be expensive? Try getting a green card. Touchstone Pictures presents France's most acclaimed actor, Gerard Depardieu, and America's newest film sensation, Andy McDowell, in the story of two very different people sharing one very unusual relationship. You just have to trust your instinct. Yeah. Why? <laughs> Green Card, a Peter Weir film. And now on to, I would say, the most talked about episode of the year thus far. It was episode 193, Bisexual Imposter Syndrome with Maggie Zhao. In that episode, I shared an advice request with Maggie from an unlady who, at the time, was really uncertain about the degree to which they should come out as bisexual. They're in a long-term relationship with a cis man. They have a kid. She was out to her partner and close friends, but wasn't sure if she should come out more publicly. So I reached back out to that listener to see if she had any updates to share. And here's what she said. 
Still with my partner, still with a foot in the closet, but quite happy where I am. I still don't see the point to come out to my parents, but I'm out to most of my friends and my coworkers. It feels good to speak freely about my experience as a bisexual with friends who are sharing this identity. I think the statistic you shared in the episode about the number of bisexual women in a relationship with a cishet man is true because more and more women around me are coming out. When I wrote my email, I was still so afraid I wasn't queer enough and that I wasn't deserving a space in the queer community. Since then, I've realized that this is my space, that I belong, and that most people are welcoming. To me, being part of the queer community also means using my privileges to bring the spotlight on trans and non-binary issues, for example. Thank you again so much, Kristen, for speaking about bi erasure. I also loved this letter from an unlady named Mallory. Thank you so much for doing this episode. It's 100% me, and it was really validating to have everything I experienced slash am experiencing be recognized, and also to realize that I'm very much not alone. I'm 34 now and realized I was bi almost exactly three years ago after being in a relationship with a cis man for over 10 years at that point. Coming up on 14 years now, all caps, everything you talked about on the episode I've gone through. Not feeling queer enough, worrying about telling people, and struggling with fully coming out or not. There were just a couple things I wanted to add to your conversation. Namely, just wanting to name things for what they are. Bi erasure and biphobia. Having so-called straight-passing privilege protects us from blatant discrimination. However, it just means we suffer in other ways, often silently. Our identity goes unnoticed and we find ourselves in a state of constantly needing to come out and to validate ourselves and our queerness. We're left in that in-between space of not feeling fully accepted by either community, which can wreak havoc on our mental health. To be blunt, I hate when someone throws straight-passing privilege out there because I feel like they don't see who I am when I know I'm queer as fuck. I also thought it was important to name the biphobia present in the quandary of coming out to your partner and if they might question the relationship afterwards. I don't mean this as a judgment on anyone, but it felt important to recognize where it was coming from. I also worried about this when I came out to my partner and have had to defend our relationship even more so when I came out to others. Being bisexual does not mean you're a cheater or polyamorous or wanting to be in an open relationship. You could be bi and any of those things, but it's not inherent. But those assumptions are exactly where those fears are coming from. The piece of advice I'd give the unlady who was worried about it would be to remind their partner and anyone else that you are already bisexual and coming out doesn't change anything on that level. If you loved them and were monogamously committed to them before, you're still going to be now. You're just opening up and acknowledging a new aspect of yourself. The assumption of any negative consequences comes from a biphobic lens that can hopefully be addressed and worked on, even from the person coming out. And just as a final reminder to myself as much as others, you don't owe coming out to anyone, all caps, ever. It is 100% yours to do with however you feel comfortable. Not coming out widely does not make you less queer or a liar or ashamed or any other negative thought. It is personal and individual and yours. 
Just because I want people to know I swoon over Chris Evans's helicopter scene in Captain America, the same way I get distracted by Hannah Waddingham and Ted Lasso, does not mean that everyone else does too. You are bisexual enough. You are queer enough. You are enough. Just as you are. Sorry for the long email, but it helps me put my story out to others, and I like sharing it. Thank you again for the episode and digging into it and putting it out there. And thank you, Mallory. We have two final stops to make before we get to the end of this episode. And the first one is Sorority Row. We all are sisters, no loyalty. We can't be beat on friendship. It's all for me. Boom, 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 boom. I wanna go 85. Boom, boom. And maybe that ain't no lie. Boom, boom. I wanna go 85. Don't you, don't you, don't you. Oh, An unlady named Melissa wrote in in response to the episode Sorority Rush in the South. And Melissa wrote, at the end of your most recent episode, you asked for listeners to fill in the blanks that the show left regarding sororities. As an alumni of a sorority and a listener of Unladylike, I have to say, you missed a lot. (laughs) My emphasis there, not Melissa's. I know your focus was on sororities in the American South specifically, so my experience may be very different. The sorority I joined connected me to an array of ethnically diverse women from South Africa, Barbados, China, Iran, Japan, Kenya, Korea, Qatar, and more. We did not fit the historically white mold you describe, but that's part of the point. Media coverage tends to paint sororities with broad strokes that lack both depth and nuance. What you missed in your episode is that sororities can be an incredible source of friendship and community. They're also highly involved in campus life and contribute a ton to the overall community on campus, including participating in rec sports and running for office in various organizations, from faculty undergraduate societies to board of governors student positions. Those participating in Greek life also volunteer on campus and in the community and run fundraisers throughout the year. Despite all of this, the media coverage sororities and fraternities receive is overwhelmingly negative. That is why, despite the fact that your podcast episode featured racial discrimination in sororities in the South, which I admittedly did not have intimate knowledge of, I felt the need to speak up for sororities overall, because the vast majority of media attention I see directed towards sororities is cynical, dismissive, or outright hostile, and doesn't tell the whole story. And like I said on that episode, it wasn't meant to tell the whole story. And as I wrote back to Melissa, like, I know that examples like this very much exist. And plenty of people find a lot of meaningful friendships. And I'm happy that Melissa experienced what sounds like the best of what a sorority can be. And I think that even if I were to do another episode on sororities, focusing really on that friendship factor... Y'all know me. I can't resist the layers. I would also interrogate those relationships and that effect through the lens of, say, class. 
And for our last stop, let's go to the library. Don't we love libraries? We do love libraries. We love librarians. And I love people who love libraries who then turn around and offer actionable ways that library lovers can help said libraries. A couple weeks back on Houston, we have a library problem. We were focusing in on school libraries, but Elizabeth has some excellent advice for how unladies could... But Elizabeth has some excellent advice on how unladies could help out with their local public libraries. I would like to encourage other listeners to take a step like I did and join slash get elected to their local library board of trustees slash directors. Side note, do you think that if I can somehow get myself on a library board, I can fill up an entire shelf just with copies of Unladylike? And maybe, and maybe put that shelf in the men's section. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, anyway, back to the letter. Most libraries are run by a board of trustees or directors. How these boards are formed varies state to state and county to county. Where I'm located, this is an elected four-year position. I know that in other places, these boards are appointed by a local elected official like the mayor. I'm in my second elected four-year term. Okay, Elizabeth. After being involved with the library for a while, I learned that one of the trustees was not running for re-election. The thought of running had crossed my mind, but then a friend asked if I'd thought of running. My first thought, unfortunately, was imposter syndrome. I was not qualified to run. Face palm. Then I remembered I am more than qualified. So I picked up the paperwork and filed to run for office. Note. The paperwork was not as bad as people think. There was a form to fill out. I had to get signatures of voters, a financial form basically showing that I wouldn't make money off the office like getting contracts, so not specifically how much money I make, and there is an optional loyalty oath form. Parenthetical. The optional loyalty oath could be an interesting episode in itself. It stated that I am not a communist and do not belong to groups that support the overthrow of the government. This is optional for all public offices in Illinois. Vestige of the Cold War, and optional per the Supreme Court, apparently. And if you are a Patreon member and you would listen to the recent Unladies Room episode on teacher history that I didn't have room for in the main feed, you will also know that that is a vestige of not just Cold War, but in the South at least, desegregation era policies that school districts would employ to weed out people associated with the ACLU. Elizabeth continues, I'm proud to take this step to support my local library and its staff. We need supporters of libraries to take this step as well, or try to get appointed so that we have people who love libraries in these roles. The library board is usually one of the uncontested elections. If people don't want to run for office, I would encourage them to get involved with the Friends of Libraries groups. These groups raise money for their libraries, helping them get the items they need to help with programs that budgets don't cover. Example, prizes for summer reading club. Also, it's important for people to vote in local elections like library board, school board, etc., These positions have a big effect on our communities, but are usually poor in terms of election turnout. 
Your voice and vote are important in all elections, so come vote! And as a mom, bring your kids every time so they also see that voting and their voice are important and matter. Sorry for this email being so long. Just want to make sure that everyone knows that there are ways they can support their local libraries. Keep up the good work with the show. I've learned quite a bit over the years. If a library board member can learn a lot from Unladylike, five stars. If you want to support an independent feminist podcast, yes, I'm talking about the one you're listening to. Join the Unladies Room. Head over to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia and get in on all of the bonus fun, okay? We have over there an exclusive interview with none other than How to Be Fine and Daily Fail host Kristen Meinzer, all about the surprising history of the Daily Mail, the Daily Mirror, and tabloids. Tabloids were really designed with women in mind. And what kind of publications are targeting women more than men? Well, at this time, it was magazines. And when I say at this time, I'm talking 1903. That is when most historians say the first modern tabloid was published. And that was the Daily Mirror. And they very specifically published the Daily Mirror with women in mind. The founder, Alfred Harmsworth, said that he wanted to be a mirror of feminine life. He wanted to make this publication attractive to women. He wanted to reflect women's interests, women's thoughts, women's work, which, full disclosure, women's work in his mind was being a wife and a mother for the most part. Um, so it, it wasn't necessarily what you and I do for a living. <laughs> he was thinking about women's work. Um, but he wanted to make it attractive to women uh, in both content as well as in format, in size. The whole thing was designed for women. Um, I do want to just add here, though, that the Daily Mirror, even though it is credited as the first modern tabloid, Alfred Harmsworth founded another newspaper almost 10 years before that, which we now call a tabloid, but originally wasn't, and that is the Daily Mail. And the Daily Mail had an agenda to also attract women with whole sections just for women. And so at this point, we call the Daily Mail a tabloid. Back then, only part of it was essentially what we would call a tabloid, but it eventually became a full-on tabloid. So I like to put both of them in that category. I like to think Harmsworth, he was really innovating. He was really thinking of that female readership at the time. A man named Harmsworth creating <laughs> these tabloids feels so on the nose. <laughs> so come on in. Everyone's welcome. Unlady is a gender neutral term. Patreon.com slash unladylike media. And I'll see you there. Unladies, thank you so much for listening and for talking back. That's what makes podcasting fun and real. And wow, we we really talked about a lot this year. And that was just a, a, a charcuterie board of letters and topics. It's not even the full spread. And I don't even know how I am continuing this appetizer food metaphor. If you have stories, corrections, questions, or advice requests, you know where to send them. 
hello at unladylike.co. You can send emails. I would love it in the form of a voice memo, though, if you can. You can also DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production, executive produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week. Oh boy, don't get me started, Kelly. Don't get me started.